Welcome to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinzing. Join me today in conversation with Dallas urban microgrower Sarah Jo Eversall of Everbloom Fields. We have three long months in the summer where the temperature could be over 100 degrees every single day for months. And it's really difficult to grow plants in that kind of an environment. And so the florists, they know about it and they want it. And they're actually the ones pushing the movement forward, saying, someone please grow some flowers locally. It's sort of reversed of what you find in a lot of markets. I don't have to compete with other flower farmers for a sale. The florists are competing with each other for my sale because there's so few of us. Hello again, and welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinzing. This is episode 637. This is the weekly podcast about slow flowers and the people who grow and design with them. It's all about making a conscious choice, and I invite you to join the conversation and the creative community as we discuss the vital topics of saving our domestic flower farms and supporting a floral industry that relies on a safe, seasonal, and local supply of flowers and foliage. This show is brought to you by slowflowers.com, the free online directory to more than 750 florist shops and studios who design with local, seasonal, and sustainable flowers, and to the farms that grow those blooms. It's the conscious choice for buying and sending flowers. And thank you to our lead sponsor, Farm Girl Flowers, Farm Girl Flowers delivers iconic burlap wrap bouquets and lush, abundant arrangements to customers across the U.S., supporting U.S. flower farms by purchasing more than $10 million of U.S.-grown fresh and seasonal flowers and foliage annually. Discover more at farmgirlflowers.com. And thank you to Cal Flowers, the leading floral trade association in California, providing valuable transportation and other benefits to flower growers and the entire floral supply chain in California and 48 other states. The association is a leader in bringing fresh cut flowers to the U.S. market and in promoting the benefits of flowers to new generations of American consumers. Learn more at cafgs.org. Today, you're invited to join me on a visit to Everbloom Fields, an urban flower farm located just south of downtown Dallas. Sarah Jo Eversall is the primary farmer with a little maintenance help from her husband, Matt, and their two young children are often found playing among the flowers while Sarah Jo tends to her crops. You'll learn how Sarah Jo started Everbloom Fields six years ago after working for many years as a data analyst. She blends a love of flowers and science, embracing flower farming as a new outlet for her data skills within the world of agriculture and entrepreneurship. Everbloom Fields grows high quality cut flowers for Dallas and North Texas area organizations, designers, and events. Sarah Jo farms using sustainable practices on a bonus lot located behind her family's historic 1878 farmhouse. Her field crops yield thousands of flowers, and her 1,700-square-foot high tunnel extends the growing season. A native Texan, Sarah Jo loves the dirt, the sunshine, and science. Please join our conversation about the challenges and rewards of growing cut flowers in Texas. And you'll learn why Sarah Jo focuses most of her energy on offering quality cut flowers primarily during the spring season, March through May with lighter offerings during the summer and autumn. 
Let's jump right in and get started and welcome Sarah Jo to the Slow Flowers Podcast. Well, hello and welcome back to the Slow Flowers Show with Deborah Prinzing. I am so excited to have my guest today, uh, Sarah Jo Eversall of Everbloom Fields. Hi, Sarah Jo. Hi. Before we get started on the full conversation, I want to ask you so many questions. Can you just tell everyone where you're located and um, what, what they're seeing behind you? Well, I'm located in the Dallas metro area. It's this massive area, and I'm a little bit south of the city of Dallas proper in a little town called Lancaster. Um, but it's still in Dallas County, so we're still considered part of the big metropolis. I grow on about half an acre is in production of cut flowers. Wow. And half of that is in my lovely, fun high tunnel. So I'm both urban and micro cut flower grower. I actually can see cars in the way distance behind you because so, you've got the sides <laughs> rolled up on your high tunnel, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is that's amazing. So um, what is your overall, because this is your residence, right? Yes. It's basically my second backyard. So I have like a backyard with my house and then we had a second field that came with our property. So that's where I do oh. all my grass. Oh, that's amazing. Okay, great. Well, I love it. And before we get into all the Q&A, I want to just give a shout out to you because you were kind of a, had a cameo appearance um, that I didn't know was coming when Shane Connolly was our uh, Slow Flowers uh, member meetup guest in September. And, you know, he was kind of previewing coming to Seattle to lecture and teach. And somehow, I don't know, he noticed that you were in the Zoom room and he started going on and on about when he came to Dallas. So you have to tell us that story from your perspective. <laughs> well, I, w- I was just excited to see what he had to say because I've worked with him on two separate occasions and he's so generous with his wealth of knowledge. I didn't actually expect him to remember me, so that was kind of exciting. Um, I loved that, yeah. But truth be told, there's not that many flower farmers in Dallas, Texas. There's only three of us that have been growing longer than five years. So in a way, we're a little memorable just because there's not that many of us. Um, He came to Dallas to do an event for the Dallas Museum of Art, And his ethos is sourcing locally. So, of course, when he came, he asked around for a local flower farm. And no one really knew I existed because I was still a little bit new into growing. My visibility was a little bit low. Um, And so he just asked some of his friends in the United States. And um, I was listed on the Slow Flowers directory. And I was also listed on the ASCFG directory. And someone gave him my name. They found me on one of those directories and gave him my name. And then he emailed me. And thankfully, I didn't really know who he was. So I said, yes. You weren't too starstruck. <laughs> no, I had, I had no idea that he had done flowers, um, you know, for his royal highness and um so I said, sure, you can have everything I have. And he was like, well, I, I really want to use every, all of my product. I want it to be local. So it turned into this really cool thing because I reached out to all the f- other flower farmers and we all got together. Some of them had blooming trees. Some of them had, you know, more spring bulbs. And we just delivered them all to Shane at the Dallas Museum of Art. Oh and gosh. what he did with them, like, blew my mind. 
which is why I was excited to, to learn from him in this low flower meetup Zoom because he's just incredible. And so yeah. that was, that was, it's probably one of the highlights of my career. And it also opened the door for me to do sustainable floristry for other events like the Dallas Holocaust Museum and the wow. Presidential Library at SMU. So, wow. Um, I mean, so, yeah. affir- so affirming that you're on the right path to have that kind of recognition from someone who he's influential. So these, these cultural institutions now are, are persuaded that, that maybe they should source locally. Was that was yeah. pre COVID? That was pre COVID, right? That, yeah, that it, was, so it was March 2020 that we did the event, the Dallas Museum of Art. <laughs> Literally, he had come from the East Coast doing an event um, with some people up there, and then I think Dallas might have been one of his last events. And thankfully, he got home before everything shut down, but just by a hair. So wow. Well, you said you did two events with him. What was the other one? So the other one. The other one was, um, it was like a little Dallas women's club rotary Mm. type of thing. Mm -hmm. And it was presided by one of the former first ladies. And so she had contacts in England and asked to bring him over. Um, And so I sourced for him for that as well. Uh, It it was more of like a little private affair. But it was, again, it was really affirming because I bring him all this product. And he's just so personable and generous. I'm like, is this okay? Is it better to bring it in a certain way? And he gave me all these little tips, you know, and it was almost like this random free class with Shane Connolly. <laughs> and I was geeking out and he was like, of course you should know this. Why shouldn't you know this? I'll tell well, it to you. I love that. And it is so, we had the same experience here in Seattle. He, um, uh, it was into, into the season, you know, kind of late, late September. And I, he wanted Joe Pie Weed, Eupatorium. And, the growers market here didn't have it. And I said, Jane, I've got a huge plant in my garden and I got explicit instructions how to cut it, when to cut it, how to treat it. And like, he was very concerned about, you know, me conditioning it, conditioning it properly. Cause I'm a gardener, not a flower farmer. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, I learned a little bit about that too. That's so yeah. great. He's just, he just is so generous sharing all of his forestry knowledge to anyone yeah. who needs it. And yeah. I, I that. Well, you know, the thing about, you said that there's really only three growers in the greater Dallas area, uh, flower growers who are, you know, mature enough to be like, kind of know what they're doing at over five years in the business. And it's such a misconception that like Texas, everything's bigger in Texas. There should be all kinds of stuff happening in the local flower scene. What's unique about your area that kind of it's, in a way, you're a pioneer. You're sort of leading this this movement rather than catching up to the, you know, the established growers. Yeah, I think it, it is really quintessentially Texas weather. Mm. So we have three long months and in the summer where the temperature could be over 100 degrees every single day oh. for months. And it's really difficult to grow plants in that kind of an environment. And so... I think, I think the florists, they know about it and they want it. And they're actually the ones pushing the movement forward, saying, someone please grow some flowers locally. It's sort of reversed of what you find in a lot of markets. I don't have to compete with other flower farmers for a sale. The florists are competing with each other for my sale because right. there's so few of us um, wow. attempting to grow in Texas weather. And... 
the winter is difficult too because we don't get snow. We get ice storms. So if you're going to have a tunnel like this, we build it not for a snow load, but for an ice load. We could get three inches of ice that collapses people's tents and tunnels. And then we get straight line winds. Um, almost every spring we have wow. a tornado threat. So there's just these random extremes that can make it yeah. pretty difficult to flower farm in Texas or to wow. figure out. If you can stick with it, there's a way to do it, but it can be intimidating at first. Well, you have such a great uh, series of posts uh, on your blog, on your website, and I'll share that link with people because I just dove in before we got on to see (laughs) some of the... You know, some of the posts are very much focused on the uniqueness of your where you're growing. Mm-hmm. Um, that high tunnel, it looks pretty sturdy, so it can support hail and and ice and wind. And, and trees, how- I've had trees fall on it and bounce <laughs> off. <laughs> did you did you buy it from a kit or did you uh, design yeah. it and have someone build it for you? No, my husband and I built it with the help of a couple friends. Um, we piecemealed it. And looking back, I'm not, I'm not quite sure why I did it, but in my second year of flower farming, I sort of intuitively knew that our weather is pretty dicey and the yeah. plants need some sort of protection. Yeah. So um, I just randomly built it. We, we've had it about five years now. And the first spring, it paid for itself. With wow. a, a, a gorgeous ranunculus crop, our ranunculus often rot here because we have clay soil and wet winters. And so just a protected area, one spring filled with ranunculus, it was paid for. Oh, my so gosh. That's I amazing. Like, oh, that worked out. Roughly. <laughs> farming is like that. But that really, that really <laughs> I know. I know. Well, it's great to hear a success story. Well, roughly, what's the dimension of that? So it's about 64 feet long, 60 to 64, and then 20 feet wide. Okay. So and it makes up half my growing space. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And it fits It fits on a this bonus lot that you have. Mm-hmm. Well, let's back up a little bit and talk about, uh, like, when did you start Everbloom Fields? And I love it's kind of a play on your last name. And yeah. So, Chris, <laughs> um, you have a background in technology, in tech, right? Before you started flower farming? So give us the the journey. Okay. Um, So I, I, I'll try to condense it. I grew up in a neighborhood. We got time. Take your time. (laughs) I grew up in a neighborhood that's a little bit like the neighborhood I live in now. Um, Really low socioeconomic. There's a lot of struggle here. And people often don't have the resources or even the time to maintain a nice lawn. And our yard, when I was a child, was dirt. There was pine trees. It was dirt. But there was these beautiful azalea bushes that someone had planted in front of our house. This bright pop of color in a, a dreary landscape and a little yeah. bit of a, a dreary world. Mm-hmm. And it was this promise. There was more beauty out there in the world. I just had to hold on. I had to get to it. And then I went to college and I started in tech. I got a bachelor's of science with statistics, math, and I ended up in higher education data analysis. And I hear people talk sometimes about how they weren't really fulfilled in their jobs, so they left. But that wasn't me. I loved it. I loved data analysis. Um, Very nerdy. It was very life-affirming for my skill set. But I also loved flowers. Well, um, my daughter was born 
And I had to quit my job because she had some medical issues that needed full-time care 24-7. So I quit my job and I'm sitting there with my little baby and I look out on this piece of land um, that I had in the back. And this whole time I loved flowers. So every Tasha Tudor garden book I'd bought, I found Lynn Bazinski's Organic Flower Farmer at a bookstore for 75 cents decades ago. I bought flowers. I bought it. So you were drawn to you were drawn to some early education, self-education about this. Yeah, about growing flowers, because I love flowers. So I just loved reading about growing flowers. So suddenly there was this window in my life. And I didn't really have anything to do but take care of my baby and be home all day. And I didn't have a job. And I had this space. And so I pulled out Lynn's book and I was like, I can do this. I can totally do this. <laughs> and then I joined the ASCFG, the Association of Cut Flower Growers. And it was like a unicorn moment because I went into their archives and there was data, 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 data. Oh, right, because they, they do so much yes. with, with John Dole and all the research that they mm-hmm. find. Oh, my yeah. God, you must have just nerded out on uh, all that stuff. Amazing. It was like this moment where my love of flowers and my love of data merged and it blew my world open. And um Growing cut flowers, there's some technicality to it, especially the harvesting. There's science involved. There's data involved. And I get to, to merge those two loves. And so it's like the one thing in the world that's, that's so perfect for me. And I, the world, the world yeah. is in balance for you. Well, you know, yes. it's, so inter- it's so interesting how your mind is wired, Sarah Jo, because I look at those things and I'm like, I don't even, I don't care about stem length and, you know, days to, days to harvest. But I obviously I should even as a gardener, but it's got to have been uh, just equipped you to not be afraid to get started and just to, you know, go, okay, I've done the research. Now I know what to do. Yeah. I I probably did more researching than farming my first year (laughs) of business, to be honest. But that's also why I love writing all those blogs is because I want to help other people some of this technical stuff. If they know it, it can totally change their flower farming business And I kind of want to make it more accessible to them if I can, or even apply it to the Texas growing environment, which is so unique. Uh, So I just love the the merging of those two things, the beauty and the science together. I, yeah, I love it. No, I mean, you're clearly your clients, they don't need to know what's behind the the curtain, but you, you're giving them what they want, obviously these beautiful flowers. Uh, So, so when was that? How old is your daughter now? So she's six. Okay. So I've been flower farming six years. That's amazing. And how's she doing? Is she like She's flowers great. too? She loves flowers. Actually, my son loves them more than she does. And he's excellent at transplanting. He knows how to properly use harvest snips and how to properly harvest. He loves it. He's amazing. She's more of a more of a free sort of she doesn't have the structure that data that data gives you. She doesn't quite have that size. Wait, is your son younger? Is your son he's younger? Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So he was there from the beginning, shoveling, helping me. Just yeah. Uh, your little farm assistant. I love it. Yes. Um, but so um when you started Everbloom Fields, what was your goal? Were you wanting to be a farmer florist or did you want to sell wholesale or retail? Or did you even know? I just knew that I needed some income and my goal was to be a successful entrepreneur. And I loved that flower farming 
was a way that I could do it. And I sort of love floristry and flower farming from an entrepreneurial standpoint because the, the barrier to entry cost is pretty low. Other businesses, you have to have all this expensive inventory before mm. you can start your business. And that's not really the case with flower farming or even floristry. I just needed to buy seeds. So my goal was to make money doing something I love. And I had to find the right sales outlets. And that took some time. I started out at a farmer's market, which was really good because I was still learning the technical side of flower farming. And a farmer's market audience is a little bit more forgiving than um, floristry is. And the price point reflects that. It's a little bit lower price point because not all the flowers are industry standard. So it's this great way to have sales and get to know people while you're learning the science of growing cut flowers. Mm -hmm. It it could be an incubator environment for for your uh, your entrepreneurial uh, vision. Yeah. Yeah. What what farmer's market was it? Is it um, the Lancaster farmer's market? No. So Lancaster does not have a farmer's market. Um, I went to the Dallas, the inner, the Dallas city. It was, um, it's called St. Michael's, but the neighborhood it was in was, is one of the more well-to-do mm-hmm. neighborhoods. So it was kind of a boutique farmer's market. And I, I loved it. It was amazing. Everyone there knew that their lives were a little bit removed from the farmer. And so every Saturday they got to go see their farmer and they love supporting their farmer. And it was, it, it remains one of my favorite memories from my early yeah. days. And those yeah. people are still so supportive of me. So it was an excellent farmer's market. Every wow. single time I went, they would try to buy me out because they knew I was a farmer trying to make my living off the land and they wanted to support it. That's and I, so cool. I was, every farmer's market was like that, but I, I kind of lucked out, I think. Well, it's someone said to me recently that, um, you know, a, you used to go to farmers markets and there was just like 40 vegetable vendors and one flower vendor but that it's in in their community they're seeing it change because it also some farmers markets had weird rules like we could only have one flower grower and i i think that's changed too i i mean i don't know if you're even selling at farmers markets anymore but were you always the only one or were there um you know other people also bringing flowers yeah, so I was the only flower farmer for many years, just because there were no other flower farmers. Yeah, we've established that. Yeah. Yeah. So towards last year, there was another flower farmer that they let come in, which I was totally fine with. I knew her. There's so few of us trying to do this that we sort of all know each other. Um, right. And I, I never want to deny another farmer the, the chance to make their living and support their family. But yeah. I left the farmer's market because the timing of it was off. So it started late April and ran mostly through the summer, which is the hardest time to grow crops. A lot of the market people um, left on vacation. So the sales dropped. So I think for us in Texas, our spring flowers are in bloom March through May. And those were my high dollar blooms with a little bit higher profit margin, but there was no sales outlet. The market wasn't there yet it didn't start yet so I ended up leaving more for the timing aspect of it Mm -hmm. Um, and then it's just so costly to grow in the summer the price of electricity for your floral cooler 
the price of water to keep everything watered when you're dealing with 130 heat index. Wow. It's really well, I saw, hard to make money. I saw on your website, you, you basically state that you specialize in spring blooming crops. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in, in, in it's for many reasons that makes a lot of sense. I'm imagining that now you're mainly selling wholesale now to florists. Is that right? Yes. Yes. So okay. I shifted my main crop and my main sales outlet. It doesn't really do any good to grow a beautiful product if no one needs it at the time that it's blooming. So those two things sort of have to be in, in concert together. So now I sell to florists and the florists were always there wanting it. The florists really want local flowers where I am. And sometimes I, I want more flower farmers to come because I'm like, if we don't meet this demand soon, they're going to stop asking. They're going right. to stop asking if we can't give them what they so desperately need. And I wish I had 10 acres so I could grow. I'm always saying no to florists. Oh my gosh. Um, it's so hard. I'm like, I'm so sorry. So, so you but, literally can, you're literally selling every stem you grow just, just to your florist customers. In the summer. <laughs> yeah. Because well, the florists go on vacation. Too. Everyone just leaves Texas. So I the, even found a way to leave. So, <laughs> so the Why? wedding industry, the wedding industry is, is, are mainly happening in spring too then, right? Yes. March through May is prime wedding. And then we start again in autumn. So we have a robust autumn wedding season. We have almost a non-existent summer, summer wedding season because it's just so hard to be outside. Well, you had said you positioned yourself in the greenhouse in front of your main fall blooming crop. So tell us about this is your other, like your secondary source of revenue is in late summer, early fall. Mm-hmm. Or I guess it's seriously middle fall now. It, yeah, it's we have like two weeks of fall. So, <laughs> so I have a two-week season in um, the, the later part of the year. Yeah, so the mums are my fall crop along with eucalyptus. Eucalyptus, it loves Texas. It reminds it of Australia. So um, it's in my tunnel because we have clay soil. So if it gets too wet over the winter, it would be very unhappy. And I often tell people my tunnel is there not really for temperature protection but for rain protection because of our Mm -hmm. clay soil. It stays wet over the winter. So many plants would die. So it keeps my eucalyptus alive. They're five-year-old plants. I have an amazing eucalyptus harvest. And then I struggled to find a crop that would bloom in autumn and survive summer to get to autumn. And it turns out that mums are that crop. It was 130 degrees in here multiple, multiple times. I ordered these plugs from Farmer Bailey in April. And they survived. They're blooming their heads off. I have just buckets and buckets of mums. Oh, my gosh. I'm like, oh, so th- is, this, is this the first year you've grown them then? It's the first year I've grown them on a large production mm-hmm. scale mm-hmm. because of my, mm-hmm. my data analysis. I like to trial things and have like 20 different spreadsheets. And so I trialed them for several years before I invested in them. Okay. Uh, so well, I mean, I'm, this is my first big production year. And, and yeah, plugs aren't cheap. So um, that's interesting. So they're, they're a unique plant because they're obviously, um, also winter hardy in some regions, but um, are you going to treat them as perennials or are you going to treat them as annuals? What are you thinking? No, because because I have one high tunnel and my butterfly ranunculus need to go in for a spring bloom, which is one of my highest um, highest selling flowers, highest in demand flowers. 
What I do for mums, and this is what I love about mums, is I'll just take cuttings and pop them up and overwinter them and then replant them. So I'm taking them out of the ground, but I'm not necessarily like buying in all new plugs. I'll buy in some new varieties that I want, but mums are so easy to propagate. Yeah. I just take the mother plant and take cuttings and create my own plugs. So where do you have room for cuttings? Do you have like a, a, a another indoor space where you can keep them or can they be outdoors all winter? No, they can't freeze. So they're in a greenhouse um, until we get a freeze and then my kitchen table will turn into, <laughs> we'll have we'll have living room picnics, which my kids love. The family but has to move. <laughs> my kids actually love that. They're like, can we have a picnic? I'm like, not till a freeze. Oh, uh, but we cute. We don't get too many freezing events. Yeah. yeah. It's just when we do, they're pretty drastic, but we don't get them often enough where I, I have this massive juggle yeah. going on. Normally, normally I only have to bring them in like four or five times. So the, the florists are are grooving on these heirloom mum varieties for fall weddings, it sounds like. Well, yes, I've discovered that I um, I could have... I've discovered that the types that I grow aren't a hundred percent what they're hoping for, but they're huh. still generous. They, so they, I didn't disbud any of them. And so they're more spray types, traditional mom looking types, and they really want more exotic full, which makes sense. Cause that's what they go to the local flower farmer for varieties that they can't get from the wholesaler. So I, I misstepped a little bit on that, hmm. but I'm not going to do that next year. I'm going to, and I feel like I should have known because this is this is what we bring to the table to florists, stuff they cannot get from the wholesaler. Um, so they like them. My farmer's market clientele, they're all still in my newsletter. They Got love it. them. So I'm doing some pop-ups. So I have plenty of sales outlets, but the florists are giving me some feedback that maybe I need to tweak my varieties for next year. Which so I are you? Yeah, love. are you saying that if you disbud, then you're getting a, a focal flower more like a la a size of a large dahlia or something, and they can use yes. that for bouquets. Yes, and then also a dahlia shape and form that isn't a tr- not a dahlia. I'm sorry, a mum shape and form that's more like a dahlia and less looking like a mum. I guess yeah. if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. Because so, we can't really grow dahlias. So we'll fake it through a month. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So in terms of your year, it sounds like you start with the ranunculus, the uh, the standard and the butterfly. And then uh, what else? Just walk us through the year. Like, uh, obviously, we know summer is kind of your escape time. You go on vacation with your family or whatever. But, um, you know, and then we look at, I'll just pause and say, we look at somebody like the Arnoskis who are near Austin or hill country, I think, and they're they're a different setup because they are year round, or they're doing zinnias and sunflowers, and you're not you're not investing in those crops because of your scale, right? Yes, it's partly because of my scale. It's partly because the Arnoskis are rural, and I'm in a large metro area, so we have a heat dome. We have all this concrete oh. radiating oh. heat. It is a lot hotter for me than it is. Wow, for them. and um. Yeah, they just have a different setup that works really well for their, yeah. their crop management. The other thing is because I have a small space, per stem, I need a higher profit margin because I don't have gobs and gobs of stems. And so 
I really, it makes sense from an entrepreneurial standpoint to grow those higher end flowers in the small space that I have and sell them a little bit more. And then I also have so many designers where I am. Again, it's that urban versus rural. I have a lot of higher end designers that maybe they don't really have access to where they are. And those designers are clamoring for a butterfly that's not beat up in transit and I can give them that. So it just makes sense. Yeah. And they probably don't, even though we love all the annuals, that's not necessarily what what designers are writing into their recipes probably. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And brides aren't really requesting that either. They don't really want a marigold. Yeah. They want like a clematis. So it's Wow. Okay. So you, so you start with the, the, the ranunculus and then what are your other kind of favorite, um, sort of, you know, value added players in the spring through maybe it sounds like through May. Yeah. So we have snapdragons. Those are a big one. They can get taller than me in the high tunnel. Oh my gosh. Just incredible. So we have snapdragons, we have stock poppies do amazing here anemones i can get anemones that are two feet tall in length when they're in oh my gosh. Tall. and then do crops like delphinium foxglove larkspur all of those we plant them now and they bloom um april is when they bloom and then let me see we grow so many fever few is a really lovely i grew forget-me-nots and they were four feet tall and the floors loved them oh um, my gosh and then it kind of gives that beautiful dreamy cottage garden look but mm-hmm. on a long stem so they can put it in you know big big installations yeah and it was blue which you know dainty little pops of blue for spring weddings are very much in yeah. trending um i also plant lysianthus it's native to texas and it i don't do anything to it and it's incredible every single time so i feel like I sort of owe it to the world and myself to just plant lysianthus because it's so easy for me <laughs> to grow. It's so true. It's so true when you hear about, you know, the challenges that growers have in other regions. And um, are you growing from seed or from plugs? No, I'm I, grow, I grow from plugs. Yeah. My setup for seed starting is very small and they're a little trickier. So I grow from plugs and I just put them in the field in autumn. And I don't even do anything to oh that. Oh my gosh, it's Sarah Jo. Ridiculous. But I feel like it makes up for, you know, all the struggles I have with dahlias and tulips and peonies. At least I get the lysianthus. So <laughs> Right. Oh my God. And and the designers know that that you probably have their colors that they want too. I mean, there's no bad color in an lysianthus palette. Yeah, and it's just fresher. It's not mush from transit. The, you know, it's not heads aren't snapped off from transit. So yeah, it's really great. So just to finish the kind of what I'm hearing you say, which I think is really uh, important, it helps me think about how you operate is real estate is very rare. So you have to be able to, as soon as you pull a crop out, you have to have the next thing to go in. You can't just afford to have something growing, you know, starting it from seed and waiting nine months for it, not nine, but whatever, five or whatever lysianthus take from seed. You don't have the real estate for that. Yeah, unless it's a flower that is in high demand and I can charge a, a pretty good price per stem. So yeah. like Gumprina, no one's going to give me a dollar a stem for Gumprina. So yeah. I'm just going to do it. Yeah. So. And so so how are the florists getting, are they on your on your weekly availability list or, uh, and how, how does that all work? So um, they, 
used to be on a weekly availability list, but now I've partnered with another flower farmer who's been growing as long as I have. And she has a delivery system already worked out. And so wow. she, we're partners. So I'm her partner farm and I deliver all my flowers to her. She puts it on her availability list and then she does all the deliveries and I give her a percentage off the top. So I can really focus on farming super quality and she has more of the logistics already built into her business model, but now she has all this extra volume, which again, we're trying to meet this demand. So it helps her. It helps me. It's this wonderful partnership. Um, oh my goodness. Play together. So it, it works out really, really well. That is amazing. That, I mean, that talk about um, the creative sisterhood. I mean, you know, <laughs> she could be perceived as a competitor and yet you're, you're finding what you each bring to the table. Oh, I, I think, honestly, um, I mean, I don't mean to keep harping on this, but Dallas is like, I don't know, 2.5 million people with like four or five flower farmers. I <laughs> I don't have competition. I don't see anybody as a competitor. Not even the florists are competitors. There's just so much market here. Yeah. Um, That's and, crazy. And there's so much, there's a massive wedding market here. Uh so many of like the contestants on the bachelorette come from Dallas. <laughs> so there's like an <laughs> wedding flower market um, that I don't think even the florist could tap fully into. So yeah, I think all the flower farmers here, we work together. We have a monthly zoom. I just hosted like 22 flower farmer people on my farm. Either they want to get started into flower farming or they're established flower farmers so we're, we work together to try and help each other grow oh, because like I said, great. if we don't meet this need, the florists are going to stop asking. So it's in all of our benefits to really help each other grow more. Oh my gosh, Sarah Jo, please keep me posted on that because we'd love to support yeah. that um, kind of like this hyper-regional um, groundswell of interest. And you're uh-huh. right, you have to sort of help beginners with information that you were seeking six or seven years ago and um, yeah. kind of save, save them the growing pains that, you know, although, you know, not everybody's going to nerd out about data like you, so you <laughs> didn't mind it. That's amazing. And how nice though, that you can keep, you can keep growing and you've got this partner who's going to handle the distribution and sales. Cause mm-hmm. that's, that's a huge distraction for, for anybody. And, Yes. And she's so good at it. She used to work in the forestry world before she became a fire farmer. So she has this knowledge base more than I have. And um, she can teach me things as well. And so it's just, yeah, I love it. I love it. So, Do you have a specific name for your partnership or is it all under her farm name? It's all under her farm name. But when she sends out availability lists, she says partner farm and she lists my farm. Mm. And so the, the florists know it's coming from you. Yeah, the florists know. And a lot of times, and we have a sticker that lists the both our farm names. And sometimes we source from a third farmer and her farm name is on it. And then on Instagram, the florists will tag me, my farm, her farm, the other farm. So I think even with the floristry world, there's a sense of collaboration because they really want what we have and we want to try and give it to them. Florists know about slow flowers. Yeah. I mean, the general public may be they're not as concerned to take time to know quite where all their flowers come from. But the florists know that where the flower comes from impacts its base life, its freshness, the uniqueness that they can offer their client. 
So I feel like there's a collaborative air here with florists as well. And so we're all just trying to help each other out. So uh, I have to ask you, do you do any design work yourself? Because you obviously have a complete keen understanding of the design side of things because you're choosing what to grow for those designers. Yeah, I do a little bit of design, not a ton, but I do do a little bit of design. I I love designing for organizations more than weddings. So like this past year, I designed some centerpieces for the Dallas Holocaust Museum. Things like that are really meaningful to me to mm-hmm. support those organizations. Um, and they value sustainability and locally grown flowers. So I just really want to help them mm. keep that value and encourage mm-hmm. them in that value. So that's the sort of design that I really like to do yeah. a, a bit more than weddings. Yeah. It's a, it, it's, it's a little bit more, um, I, I would imagine more more enjoyable and and less stressful because you're whatever you bring they're going to love and you're not trying to keep you know these expectations of emotion that get wrapped up in weddings. A bit wider than a bridal vision is the, yeah. a little bit more narrower. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're not going to bash bash weddings no, though because no, that pays I, the bills. <laughs> yeah, and I think part of why I tend to say no to weddings is because it's just so important. And I don't feel I'm I'm quite equipped to hand to give them what they deserve, so I'm going to yeah. send them to someone that I know can give them what yeah. they deserve. Whereas yeah. I can do a, a fundraising dinner and knock it out of the park. So I love it. Yeah, I wanted to go back to a second uh, uh, for a second to the crops that you mentioned. Um, okay. Would you put those into, especially those field crops that you're planting in the fall and harvesting in like March or April? Are those would those go into the cool flower category? Yeah. Um, okay. So. So many of them you are planting and then just letting get established at the end of the, you know, end of fall, right? Yes. So 99% of everything I grow is planted in autumn and maybe like one person, maybe not even 1% is planted early spring because you read those seed packets and they say like four to six weeks before your last frost, that's ice season. If you put something in the ground, it will get covered with ice four to six weeks before our last frost. So I'm like, nobody should be doing that here. Maybe in other, the rest of the world, but we. So you're like cheating. You're cheating the season by starting even earlier then. Mm-hmm. And are yeah. you done? Are you done? Or did I catch you at the busiest time of your life? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not done only because I have all these mums. So then mm-hmm. I need to harvest them all and plant that row. So juggling that timing, the timing of a fall crop in bloom when you need to be planting, fall planting. Yeah is a little tricky. So I'm not so, quite there. So back, back where we're seeing those moms, that's where your butterfly, butterfly ranunculus will go. Uh, that's where my snapdragons will oh, go. Snaps. My butterflies okay. are in the ground, but I'll put all my snapdragons there and they're, they're anxious to, to get in the ground. And then you'll pull the sides down. Um, and the, do you have doors on the ends to keep that mm-hmm. completely? To, okay. Wow. Yeah, but Beautiful. again, I only do that when it, it's a pretty deep freeze and it doesn't happen that often. So I only have to close the sides three or four times. Actually, sometimes I close it more in the spring if we have a tornado threat or a hail threat or a, a wind event. God. Sometimes I close it more in the spring than I do in the actual winter. You're like yeah. a wet, like t- constantly watching the weather. I'm sure that's just like the first thing you check when you wake up in the morning. It's crazy. Yeah. So, uh, Another random fun fact is that I've always been a weather nerd. And many, many eons ago, I 
I lived in Mississippi and I was trained by the National Weather Service to be a tornado spotter. And so this also, (laughs) I know, it also combines my super nerdy love of weather. And I have weather data for the state of Texas going back 60 years. So it's so so useful because you know then the third week of March, this is the activity that I can expect. Maybe it doesn't happen every year, but you're, you can have the historical reference. That's great. I would love to hear that story sometime. Maybe that, like, that's going to be in your life movie. (laughs) Sometimes I have a lot of friends that will text me like, what's the forecast? Cause they don't, they want to know my forecast as opposed to the weatherman's forecast. So it's kind of funny. That's great. Wow, that is wonderful. Well, um, before we wrap up, what do you have cooking for? I know you're going to trial, you're trialing new flowers for next year and maybe changing your mom mom program. Is there anything Mm -hmm. else that you're going to be able to introduce for 2024? Um, I think as far as crops grow, there's a couple new crops I'm trialing. I have this this weird... um, sort of personality streak. If someone says it can't be grown here, I want to try and prove it scientifically. So I'm trying to get peony crops to do really well here. So I have this whole experiment set up with peony crops because if I can get our local florists fresh peonies in March. Oh my gosh. They would, they would love that. So a lot and, and it might ha- it might happen because you'd be harvesting before that blast of, of unbearable heat, right? Okay. Yes. And actually what happens is they bud up in like January because we get this random warmth and then I have to protect them from the bud from the ice. So if I can successfully do that, then they can bloom um, before the heat comes. So uh, that's what I'm some... working on. I'm, I'm just trying to, to meet the florist's heart's desire. So that's what's on tap. Um, hopefully more flowers to more florists that are just going to blow their minds. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Sarah Jo. This has been so amazing. And um, I hope you share some photos so we can put them in the show notes uh, at slowflowerspodcast.com because it's fun seeing this, but I know there's more. Definitely. Okay. Thanks so much. Yay. Thanks for having me. This is fun. Thanks so much for joining us today. Visit slowflowerspodcast.com for episode 637 to find our show notes and watch the replay video of Sarah Joe's interview with me. You'll also watch a short bonus video tour of her growing fields and high tunnel that she just filmed and shared. You can also find a link to Sarah's extensive blog series, which includes info-packed posts like growing cut flowers in warm, hot climates, bee-friendly perennials for the flower farm, and Texas native shrubs for cut flowers and foliage. She's a wealth of information and inspiration for anyone growing flowers in the heat, humidity, and other challenging climate conditions like wind and ice storms. Okay, our next sponsor thank you goes to Storic Cold, creators of the revolutionary CoolBot, a popular solution for flower farmers, studio florists, and farmer florists. You'll save thousands when you build your own walk-in cooler with the CoolBot system, and an air conditioner. If you don't have time to build your own, they also have turnkey units available. Learn more at storeitcold.com.
If you're in the U.S., you're probably racing around getting ready for the long Thanksgiving holiday weekend like me. And if you're a Slow Flowers member, keep an eye out for our Thankful For You package of marketing resources and exclusive content just for you. It will land in your inbox today, November 22nd, 2023, as part of our celebration during Membership Appreciation Month. We've collected a bounty of goodies to share with you, including 10 new social media badges, the updated member marketing toolkit, our autumn 2023 issue of Soulflowers Journal, our digital e-zine, and this is really special, the one hour 50 minute video of Shane Connolly's lecture and design demonstrations from his Seattle appearance this past September. Reach out to hello at soulflowers.com if you can't find the email in your inbox and enjoy. Next up, there's still time to grab your ticket to the 2024 Slow Flowers Summit and take advantage of our early bird registration rate. You'll save $100 off your Slow Flowers Summit registration now through December 31st. And Slow Flowers members always receive an additional $100 off their registration. Find the link to more details in our show notes or head over to slowflowerssummit.com. I can't wait to see you in Banff, Alberta, Canada, June 23rd through 25th. 2024. Thank you to Red Twig Farms. Based in Johnstown, Ohio, Red Twig Farms is a family-owned farm specializing in peonies, daffodils, tulips, and branches, a popular peony bouquet by mail program, and their Spread the Hope campaign where customers purchase 10 tulip stems for essential workers and others in their community. Learn more at redtwigfarms.com. I love all this floral goodness, and I am so happy you enjoyed me today. The Slow Flowers Podcast is a member-supported endeavor downloaded more than one million times by listeners like you. Thank you for listening, commenting, and sharing. It means so much. As our movement gains more supporters and more passionate participants who believe in the importance of our domestic cut flower industry, the momentum is contagious. I know you feel it too. If you're new to our weekly show or our long-running podcast, check out all of our resources at slowflowerssociety.com. I'm Deborah Prinzing, host and producer of The Slow Flowers Show and The Slow Flowers Podcast. The Slow Flowers Podcast is engineered and edited by Andrew Brenlin. The content and opinions expressed here are either mine alone or those of my guests alone, independent of any podcast sponsor or other person, company, or organization. Next week, you're invited to join me in putting more slow flowers on the table, one stem, one vase at a time. Thanks so much for joining us today, and I'll see you next week. Thank you.